0: Thank you, Isaac, and uh, to our musicians and uh, everyone who helped up here today. I you're being blessed so far with this service. And it's good to be sharing God's Word with you again. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 49 as we reach toward the end of this Life of Joseph series. Genesis chapter 49, and we'll read just verses 1 and 2 just to begin this sermon. Genesis 49, verse 1 says, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together, and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll ask for his blessing. Father in heaven, as we approach your word now, I pray that our hearts would approach with the right manner that we would uh, seek to learn from it, that that we would, we would revere it, Lord, that we would believe it with all of our hearts. And we pray, Lord, for your grace, that we might understand it more fully. We thank you once again for this opportunity for us to be able to meet together in this way. And we pray that our lights would indeed shine as we grow in the faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So we're up to this particular um, uh, part where Jacob is on his deathbed and he's called all his sons uh, to him and he's about to give them a blessing. Well, there's a few different ways of looking at it. Let me ask you a question. If someone told you you were going to do something wrong sometime in the future, if someone told you the details and said you were going to do this, would you be able to avoid it? Would you be able to stop yourself from doing it if you found yourself in that situation? Could you avoid doing something wrong if you were pre warned about it? You're all saying yes. Of course I would, Pastor Frank. What if someone told you that you were a good for nothing? What if your father said to you as you were growing up, you're good for nothing? Would you be able to avoid fulfilling that? Today we're going to look at these blessings that Jacob has for his sons. I mean, we call them blessings, but they are a lot of different things built together, you see. They aren't just a blessing. They are indeed a blessing. But they're speaking of truth. There, and Many people have a challenge speaking personal truths to other people because we're afraid of hurting people's feelings and how they might take it and all that sort of stuff. But Jacob is here on his deathbed, and if you're going to speak the truth, you might as well do it on your deathbed. Um, no better place to do it. And so he speaks very candidly with his sons, and he tells them exactly where they're at. And it tells them exactly what's going to happen to them in the, in the coming day. So, in essence, this, this passage here, this whole chapter is a blessing, yes. It's the last words of a father to his sons. It's judgment about what would befall them because of the lives they had lived up to that point. It's um, it's an in, It's information and it's truth-telling about their weaknesses and and what he saw in them and what they should be aware of. And the question then is, can they actually change their life once they're told what their weaknesses were and what their strengths were? And it's a prophecy about the coming days, things that would happen in hundreds of years. And we're going to look at some of those um, fulfillments because it's not just uh, words of a father to a son. This is God's words through Jacob to his children. And so the question I'd like us to think about as we're looking uh, and and, and delving into this particular passage is, um, what about me? What if I was reminded about something that would happen to me in the future? Or what if I was told that because of the life I've lived, I would live, that my children and their children would end up a certain way? Would I be able to change my lifestyle as a result? Would I? What would I do with them? Would I warn them about what's to become and things they should be aware of? How would I pass that message on to them? You know, you think about Israel today, yeah? and there are people who are Jewish, right? Now, they've descended from these people. So you can imagine, as you read some of these blessings and some judgments and curses, really, there are people in the world today who actually are from these lines of people who are reading this thing that was written thousands and thousands of years before and they've watched this these things transpire in their own people and if you're of the tribe of judah for instance and you know that the that the blessings and the and the, the judgments on judah were a particular way you may feel a certain way wouldn't you or you may have a, either a bright or or a, or a or a sorry outlook but in these things i wonder when someone pronounces something about us, what type of people are we? And how would we take it? If someone says, you've done this wrong, or you're, you're bad at this, or you have a weakness in this area, the question for us more than anything else is, how do we take that? I know the majority of times, people get their backs up because <coughs> we don't like being told personally. See, it's like when I'm preaching the gospel, when I'm, when I'm preaching at the front of the church, I'm speaking to everyone, right? I love you is all the same. Heard that before? That's a lie, okay? Um, <laughs> but when I speak to you as a congregation, it's easy to take the words that I might say, even if they are personally directed, and I don't personally direct uh, when I preach, but let's say they hit the mark with you, Okay? Our nature, by our very nature, wants to let that thing pass over our heads and say, that's for the guy behind me. (laughs) Because that's the way we're built. We don't like taking criticism. And in this particular case, I'd like you to put yourselves in the shoes of his own children who were about to hear from their father for the very last time. And he has some pretty hard words for some of them. How are they going to take that? How did they deal with that? So let's have a look and see what he says. And before, uh, before we go into all the details, let's, let's let's I'll share with you some of the points about this thing, right? So verse 2 then says, so he calls themselves together. He's going to tell them what's going to happen to them in the, first of all, verse 1, what's going to, what shall before you in the last day. So this is not just a blessing. This is not just a father's blessing upon his children, you know, as he's about to depart. This is something that, God has given him to tell them, this is what's going to happen to you later on. Okay? Verse 2 then says, Gather yourselves together and hear ye sons of Jacob. <laughs> I like the way he says that. And hearken unto Israel your father. So, as, he, as he's about to begin, the first thing I want you to notice is that verse 3 is the beginning of a poem. He's taken the time, right? to write this thing down. This is a poem that that is being created. Now, a poem... Anyone written poems before? Yes, we have some poets in in the congregation. It's not an easy thing to do, is it? Whether you're trying to rhyme the words at the end or trying to make this thing flow or trying to find the right words, Jacob has put a lot of effort into this thing. He's written a poem for his children. Now, Jewish poems are not exactly the same as just normal English poems, whether you rhyme the every second one or or two at a time or whatever else it may be. It's, it's, they, they're done in a different sort of way. But still, there's a lot of effort that's gone into this. But one thing this points to is that God's hand is already in it. So this is a poem that's been, that's been written. And what's beautiful about the KJV, the Bible you hold in your hands, is that it preserves most perfectly that poem, the flow of a, of the poem. Okay, It doesn't... Shift into normal English vocabulary the way it is written. The KJV keeps the flow of that poem. The other point to notice here is that the boys are not listed in their birth order. So they're not just listed from oldest to youngest, although there is some order within it. They're actually listed by the order of their mothers. Okay, so it's the order of Leah. Bilha, Zilpah and Rachel. So there are four mothers to these 12 uh, young men or older men now. And they're listed in the order of their mothers and within their mothers. So first Leah's children and then um, Bilhah's children, then Zilpah's children, then finally Rachel's who had the children last. As we go through each of these blessings and future predictions, we should bear in mind that, The nature of the son is outlined in each of these. What type of person they actually are. But what also comes about is that he's not just speaking about that son. He's speaking about the descendants of that son. So if he says a son is an angry type of person, he's saying that your descendants are going to be angry type of people. Do people take after their parents? Generally. He's taken after their father here. Who's taken after the character of their father? Anyone notice that? We have at least one, or we have a couple who are willing to admit they take after their dad. Who takes after their mum? More people take after their mother. Is that because your mum's sitting next to you? Okay. Well, in this particular case, he's not just speaking about the actual son. He's speaking about the descendants of that son. So we should keep in mind that in one family there tends to be, although it's not strictly controlled, a particular type of spirit, a particular type of character. It tends to flow. Yes, people do inherit the natures of their, of their parents. And these fathers of these particular tribes have in some way allowed their and will allow their nature to flow down to their descendants and various strengths and things of that nature. But keep in mind as well, Um, that as we read these particular things, which are an assessment of a father about his own sons and a prophecy for their future, we should keep in mind that in one family, and what should surprise you and shouldn't surprise you for those of you who come from larger families, is that within one family, with the same set of parents, you can have very, very different characteristics in children. (coughs) If you have four, you can have four very different children, completely different personalities. And this is what we find in Jacob's uh, children. He's, he has 12 sons, and those 12 sons are very different to each other. Guess what is true of churches? Churches don't have the same type of people necessarily within them, although there may be a type of spirit behind them, but within each church there is a wide variety of characters and people with very varying experiences and people with varying baggage that they're carrying because of what's happened to them in the past, and there are varying people of maturity and faith, and knowledge, intelligence, and wisdom and grace, and all those types of things. So, a church is like a family that has been brought together. Except we come from different parents, but we share the same father. Okay. So let's uh, let's continue. Let's look at this thing and let's see what he says. Okay. Verse 3 says, Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed. Then defilest thou it, he went up to my couch. So that that final part, it's almost like he's he's looked to his other sons and he said he went up to my couch. He went up to my couch? In other words, where I recline. You know, there's a, there's a dignity and honour that comes from being the firstborn in a family, the oldest one, the one that's normally looked to up to by the younger ones who normally carries more, more responsibility than the other ones because of his age and maturity and the amount of effort that's gone into him. In, in, in Jewish culture, the firstborn it, it has the birthright The authority in a family. If the father dies, the firstborn takes the responsibility of the father. Strength and power were Reuben's. The honourable position was Reuben's. But strength and power without stability is a recipe for disaster. When you have a lot of strength, a lot of power, a lot of authority, but no stability, you can find yourself in all types of problems. And so this episode that that, um, taints his uh, his, uh, testimony here, that takes away his dignity, was adultery, committing adultery with his father's, well, you can call her wife, but in more technical terms, Bilhah was his father's concubine. Bilhah was the, the mother of Dan and Naphtali. And Reuben had sex with her in his father's bed which his father never forgot and which, which um, changed him and would have changed the perception of him by his own family because it was well known what had happened. So you can imagine if you, were, if you were Dan and Naphtali, what on earth would you think of your brother? What respect could you possibly have for your brother now? How would you look up to him as the firstborn? Would you even consider him? And that's where Reuben fell. The authority that he once possessed in his own tribe would have no meaning anymore. And what we find in, in Reuben's tribe, that, that his descendants, throughout the whole of the history of Israel, we find no meaningful leader in the future. And of all the kings, and of all the leaders, and of all the judges and and prophets and everything, we find no leader coming out of Reuben. From Reuben, we see no prophet. We see not one judge or great military leader. In fact, we do see mention of great people. But instead of great people, when Moses was... was, um, blessing uh, all the tribes of Israel, he prayed, he had to pray specifically as they were about to enter into the promised land that God would preserve them because they were dying out, that they would not be completely consumed. In Reuben, we see the potential consequences of sin. It's a great lesson to learn in Reuben that one act one choice can completely destroy your life, but not just yours, the lives of everyone else that comes after you. He had the birthright. He could have been the greatest. He could have been the one who had the most respect from all the rest of his family, but with one choice and one decision, he destroyed all of that. And so we see the potential... In Reuben, we see the potential that sin has to destroy the future of of a person, but not only them, but also the people around them that they love and their families. So take this on board. None of our choices are without consequences. None of them. And we should always be mindful that even though God will continue to love us, which he always does, he will not always protect us from the consequences of our sin. God may shield us in some ways to protect us from our stupidity and from our sinfulness, but God doesn't guarantee that. You see, it's more important for God that we learn important lessons, even if it does cause us pain. And so he doesn't always protect us from the consequences of our sin. In fact, he says it. Don't be foolish. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. With one scene, Reuben destroyed not only his own reputation as the leader of the family, but cast a shadow over the rest of his descendants as well. They would forever be remembered of what their father did a long, long time ago. Always remember that our choices don't just affect us. They affect everyone connected to us. Whatever small thing you think that you may do that doesn't affect other people, I'll guarantee you that it's affecting other people. You just don't want to see it, but it does. And though we may reap what we sow, the reality is that in most cases, um, there are many other people who end up reaping what we sow. We don't just affect ourselves, okay? So remember that about sin. And normally the people that end up reaping the consequences of our sin are the people that we love the most. So be careful for your choices. And a similar lesson can be learned from the acts of Simeon and Levi as we look at them now. Genesis 49 verse 5 then says, Simeon and Levi are brethren. There you go, your two brothers. Hang on a sec. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitation. O my soul, come not not thou into their secret, unto their assembly, mine honour. Be not thou united, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. Cursed be their anger, (coughs) for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. You'll notice that, and for the only time in this whole chapter, two brothers are lumped together. Why? They're lumped together because, like Simeon, like Reuben, who sinned and made a decision to sin, these two chose to do it together. So now they're lumped together, and I'll tell you a bit of the background story here of what he's talking about, because <clears throat> he says that they're cruel and they're um and and he says. In verse 6, come not, oh my soul, come not thou into their secret. As you see, because they had a secret, they had a plan that they were they hatched out together, and in doing that, they not just killed a man. Notice how he says they dig down a wall, they killed a city. Hmm. Alright? And so it started when a fellow called Shechem, the son of a fellow called Hamor, who was a Hivite, who was a prince. Who were princes in their own habit that they were the leaders of their own uh, people and lived in a particular city? Um, he saw Dina, their sister. Okay, so Dina was was one of the the brothers' sister. She was off. She was she was doing something. She was traveling the country, and this fellow Shechem saw her and took her. Now, there's a, a good possibility that he forced himself onto her. And then he ended up taking her home to be with him. But as uh, stories go, he fell in love with her. And it says that he tried, started to treat her really nicely and, and wanted to marry her and did everything he could to, to try to win her. Okay, Now, I'm not sure. It doesn't specifically mention that, that he forced himself onto her. We suspect that he did. But he then asked his father, Haymore, and he said, Dad, I want to marry this girl. And he said, can we go and, and uh, speak to these people and see if we can restore this thing and see if we, if we can, uh, whatever it takes, <laughs> I, want to, I want to marry her. So they both went to, to Jacob. They told them what had happened. They got wild. You can you imagine the conversation? And Hamor says, but my son wants to marry your daughter. He loves her. And they had this negotiation, this conference, whatever else that happens. And out of that conference, out of that particular time together, they agree that they would allow Shechem to marry Dina on one condition. They said, because it's it's not right that a man who is uncircumcised be joined to a Jew. So they, they put a condition on them and they said, if you, because the, the agreement was that they would intermarry now, that, that the Hivites would, would allow their children to marry the, 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 the children of uh, Jacob and Jacob would allow his children to marry the children of, of the Hivites, right? And so, so they put a condition on the Hivites and they said, well, if you go, we're going to do this and we're going to allow uh, Shechem to marry uh, Dina, um, you all have to get circumcised, all the men, all at once. they agreed they weren't to pay anything and they said all right we'll do it and they did and so they all the men of the village of that of that city literally a city because it had a wall um, got circumcised and uh, as you can imagine they weren't in a very good state <laughs> Simeon and Levi still enraged about their sister um decided to go and kill Shechem. But they didn't just kill Shechem. They killed every man in that city. Every man. And then they plundered the whole city as well. So after actually coming to some sort of an agreement that might have calmed things down, they actually went and did that. And so it's, it's, when, you th- when you think of Jacob's words, he says, you guys are cruel. He goes, I don't want to come into your secret, into your secret assembly. I I can't attach my honour to you anymore because of what you've done. What you did was completely outside of what I would have wanted. The punishment that they bestowed upon the, these Hivites was so disproportionate to the crime and so, and so clearly a break of an agreement that their father had made with the Hivites, that their father was disgusted with them. And he feared that when the other people in Canaan found out about what they had done, that they would become the target of all the people in Canaan because of the way they they treated these other people. So Simeon's uh, and Levi's anger overtook them, overtook their better judgment, and they did that which was both sinful against God and disrespectful against their own father. And so he says in verse 7, he says, "'Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel.' I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. You know, when some people get together, um, and some people get together, like Simeon and Levi, um, it's not a good thing. They, They become cruel and they become vicious. Their sin and hatred multiplied when they got together. They spurred each other on to do this particular thing. They encouraged each other in that particular thing. So so these two were two hotheads. And when the two hotheads, away from the rest of their family and the moderation of their family, got together, they actually lost control of their hotheadedness. So one lesson for us to learn is, if one of our weaknesses is anger, avoid other people with the same problem. Avoid other people with the same weakness. Because if you do, if you are a bitter person, or if you are a person who's easily uh, uh, riled up, and you get together with another person who's riled up, and you then both have the same cause, then the likelihood is that you are going to spur each other on to do something that is foolish. So one lesson for this, apart from controlling our own anger and not letting our emotions run away with us, is that if you have a problem with anger, it's wise not to hang around other people with the same problem. That's why he says at the end, I'm going to divide you. I'm not going to keep you together. And it's interesting because when, you, when you're when you together with other people who are hot-headed or who have the same problem, you are most likely to make a foolish decision because you've both had the same blind spot. You know, ever dri- driven down a road and you can't see the car on the left back, right? Now, today they've got special cars that with special cameras and they'll tell you if there's someone there, but generally, if you haven't got that particular feature in your car, when you go to pull over to the left or change lanes to the left, it's a, it's a lot harder to sometimes see a car that's in your blind spot. Well, everyone's got blind spots. But if you hang around with the same people in the same car that have the same blind spot, you're most likely to have an accident. But if So hang around with people that don't have the same weaknesses as you. I know that's hard to do because sometimes we are attracted to people with the same weaknesses because you can have a bit of a gripe together. You can, you can encourage each other in that particular thing, but that's the flesh that wants that. So do your best to avoid making foolish choices based on emotions. Give yourself a chance and speak to people. Before you make foolish decisions, give yourself a chance to speak to people who aren't blindsided like you might be. It's interesting to see how this, this prophecy plays out later on when he speaks about his two sons and he says, I'm going to divide you, you know, among Israel. He's got two, two sons, Simeon and, uh, and, uh, and Levi here. Simeon, out of all of them, became the smallest tribe. And when it came time for Moses to actually bless the tribes as they were entering the promised land, Simeon didn't get a mention. Not even a mention. He was so small. And he had to be given territory from Judah. Judah said, I'll right, we'll give you part of ours because we've got too much. Levi, on the other hand, and you know Levi. So the story of Levi is that he was... They were the priestly class now. They were the priestly nation, okay? Um, notice how it says, he says, I'm going to scatter you among the people. Now, this is 700 years before he spoke on these words. This is you're, you're talking some serious time between one and the other. What happened to Levi? Levi didn't get an allotment of land like the other sons. Levi was scattered throughout Israel, and they ended up living in the cities that were designated as cities of refuge. Okay? Okay? <coughs> So they were literally scattered among the people of Israel. But despite Levi's sin with his brother Simeon, his curse would also become a blessing because Levi was chosen then to become the priests and to perform the priest's function in Israel, whose inheritance was not land but the Lord. And they'd be granted the responsibility of performing sacrifices carrying the Ark of the Covenant, setting up the temple and minding the temple and also praying on behalf of their their people. So look at that. They were actually pulled away. They were separated from Simeon and they were given a special responsibility but not given an inheritance with the rest of the people. So beware of the company that you keep. But keep in mind also, and one thing we learn from this particular thing, is that our failures do not mean that we are stuck in a particular position for the rest of our lives. God can take our failures and even turn them into something good later on, but let him do that. Does that make sense? God can take something bad we've done and actually turn it to something good if we are willing to listen and obey. God can redeem those who were considered failures. So if you think you're a failure in life, no. God doesn't see you as a failure. Okay? You may have failed somewhere, but that doesn't mean that the rest of your life is a failure. God can take, if he can take Levi from this particular position of having done something so stupid and so evil and then turn his descendants into the priests, then God can do something amazing with you. Now we come to Judah. And and Jacob spends the the most time on Judah and Joseph. So in verse 8, it says, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hands shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion and as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? So Judah, let's, let's just park there for a moment. Judah, if you remember the story of Judah and the party played in, in redeeming Benjamin and getting Simeon out of prison, uh, when he, went, he went, uh, went back to Egypt, he was the one who said to his father, I'll bear the responsibility. I'll, I'll go in their place. If something goes wrong, let it fall on me. Let me be cursed. So he took the responsibility. He he was willing to be ransomed in order that his brothers could go free. So he bore their guilt and responsibility for their lives. And if you recall, I shared that this was a picture of Christ. In these few verses, I'm sure you're already beginning to recognize some of the references to Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah. We're going to see um, Judah compared to a lion that's crouched and ready to pounce. And as an old lion, so he says he's a young lion, so he's ready to pounce. He's always ready, always very active. And then you got him also as an old lion, it says, Who can rouse him up? Who's going to poke a stick at him to wake him up? No one is, because he's too strong. And it says that he has his, his foot on the neck of his enemies, which is a sign of complete dominance. And his brothers, his own brothers, are going to bow down to him. And in this, we see this most fulfilled in the one who was descended from Judah, which is Jesus Christ. The one who had complete victory over the devil and over death and over hell. The one whom we bow down to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The one who is completely victorious, who cannot be uh, beaten. If you remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 15... God says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So he has victory over the devil because he steps on his head. Judah's line would be praised in more ways than one, but praised ultimately because of the descendant. Praised because Judah's line brought the Son of God into the world. But Jesus wasn't the only king in Judah. Because look at verse 10. Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter is the scepter of, of rule, right? And it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now, what does all that mean? Well, apart from King David, who's from the tribe of Judah, and King Solomon... The line of Judah reigned in Israel and Judah for over 640 years. So they had a lot of kings among them, not all good, plenty of them bad. In the wilderness, when Israel was travelling through the wilderness, you know which tribe went in the front? It was Judah. Judah's tribe was at the front and led from the front. But this lineage, it says here, will culminate... When Shiloh come. Now, what's Shiloh come? Well, Shiloh is, Anyone know what a cipher is or a cryptogram or something like that? When Shiloh come is a cipher for the Messiah. When he comes or the Christ. When Christ comes, then the lineage will be complete. That's the apex. That's the pinnacle of this particular kingdom. When Shiloh come, it says, and then they will be gathered to him there will be a gathering of all people. There won't any more be, if, as you've if you've know your old testament, a division of north and south with Israel, if you remember. Then the northern tribes were taken away by Assyria. And the southern tribes in Judah was eventually taken into Babylon. There's not going to be any more of that. It's going to be one united people. All the people be gathered to this person. And we know that this is speaking about Christ. And we know that when he returns, he will gather Israel to himself. They will come to him. They will accept him as their Savior. This is another prophecy about that. But also that that time... He will rise again, once again, as the lion. You see, we, we, we keep these pictures up here, if you've noticed. There's one of the lamb and one of a lion. So when he came into this world as a man and born in a place called Bethlehem, he came as a lamb. And he came and he stayed as a lamb. And he was willing, and he willingly went and wherever they took him, and they took him to a place called Calvary, and they started to kill him as a lamb. And he didn't open his mouth, and he didn't fight back, and he didn't raise an army, he didn't do anything like that. So he died for the sins of the world. So now he's ascended up into heaven and it says that he will come back as a lion. No more a lamb. And when he comes back as a lion, there is no one who's going to be leading him anywhere. There is no one who's going to be telling him what to do. You see, he will take up his rightful throne in this world. And he will usher in what the Bible calls the battle of Megiddo or Armageddon. And he will fight the armies of the devil and he will defeat them all. And he will sit and gather his people to him and he will rule the world for 1,000 years in absolute peace and justice. And he will rule that, that world and it will be a world of abundance, of peace, of no sickness, God will lift the curses. Look at verse 11 now. It says in verse 40, chapter 49, verse 11, Binding his foal unto the vine and his asses colt unto the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes uh, shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. The picture here, if you look at it, you might think to yourself, oh, he's, he's talking about destruction. Because the Bible says that when Christ returns, he's going to have blood on the on the bottom of his clothes. Okay, His clothes are going to be covered and splattered with blood. Right? This is not necessarily that. You see, what this is saying here is that in this particular time when he returns and he's ruling and he's gathered his people to himself, it says that you can grab your foal and grab your ass and you can take it to your vine where you're growing all your grapes and you can happily just tie them up over there. Now, would you tie up a horse or, a, or, a, or, an, or an ass or a donkey to a, to a vine? No, you wouldn't. I don't want to meet in my grapes. But the, the point is, that there's gonna be such an abundance, such an abundance of everything during that time, that that you don't care. You can tie up your horse anywhere. Can, you can let him eat, you can let the goats eat whatever they like or whatever it is, because everything's just gonna grow up so fast that there's gonna be so much. It says you're gonna be drinking so much wine here, it says, and this is not-I don't believe this is like alcoholic wine that you get drunk. This is like the, the juice that comes from the from the grapes is going to be uh, milk that comes from cows and everything else that that's in abundance, you're going to be so much, your you, your eyes are going to be red with so much uh, uh, grape red grape juice you're going to be drinking, and your your teeth are going to be white completely with with milk. So the idea is that there is so much in abundance when he comes, when Shiloh comes and he rules the world, that is that you won't have to worry about anything anymore. And this is a description that we have in many places in the Bible about, about the time of that, of those thousand years. Because it actually says during that time that the person who's actually, um, who's actually uh, plowing, the person who's actually reaping, okay, the guy, the guy who's actually, sorry, the, the guy who's reaping is going to be catching up to the guy who's sowing. And the guy who's sowing has to get a bit of a move on because, he's, because he, he, they're reaping so fast behind them <laughs> that it's actually catching up. So there's, the, there's this picture of the world becoming amazingly fertile during that time. But that's when Shiloh comes. So this is the, the description that we have of Judah. And Judah is epitomized in Christ as the king as the righteous one, as the one who will ultimately rule the entire world and Israel in peace. And now we reach Zebulun. Verse 13, it says, Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea, and he shall be for an haven of ships, and his border shall be unto Zidon. So we, have, we see here only one verse about Zebulun. And the tribe of Zebulun, when you, look, when you see where they were situated, They didn't actually take the coast, but what they did, they actually took the place called Via Maris. Okay, Via Maris, the the way of the sea, okay, that means in Latin, um, was between. And so it was the the route through which all the stocks and supplies and, and, and trade that came from the sea had to go through. So Zebulun inherited this amazing position of influence, a position that that could benefit them and others because of the necessity of the trade in life. And that's also a picture for us, you see. We we stand... So so think of them like this. They're at an, an important intersection. The goods come over here. They have to go through you to get to the other people on the other side. And then the people on the other side create goods and they go through that way, right? So you're, you're in an important hub. Um, you and I stand at an important hub. Did you know that? We stand at a very important intersection here. We are standing at the intersection between heaven and, and the earth. We are the ambassadors of God to this world. We are citizens of heaven, but we are dwelling on the earth. Wherever we are, wherever we get together, is already the kingdom of heaven, already personified. We stand at the intersection between the trade that comes from heaven, the truth that comes from heaven is meant to flow through us. Do you understand? We stand at a very important place because you take away the person in the middle, it doesn't go. The information doesn't go. They may have been trading in goods and things like that in in Zebulun, but for us, we are trading in the word of God. We're trading in things such as truth and love and grace and mercy and peace and the things that heaven wants earth to know and to have. And do you know who they flow through? They flow through you and me. So there's this beautiful hymn that says, Make me a channel of blessing. A channel means that you, you're just a conduit here. You're the one through which those things can flow through. And so we become influential people in this world. Not that they want to hear everything we have to say. No, no, no. But we still have an important trade here. We have something important to give. And if we don't allow that truth to flow from heaven through us, then they starve. What makes us so important now is that there is a, that there is a, a dearth, that there is a, um, a famine in this world, of God's truth. And it's getting worse. You look at different places in the world at the moment that are experiencing... England's going through England. Britain is going through a famine, not a famine, a, uh, a drought at the moment. There are places in Italy where, where the River Po has actually ceased to flow. So Europe is experiencing a lot of drought conditions at the moment. We're not. We're sort of experiencing the opposite over here. But the, this world is experiencing a drought when it comes to the Word of God. And so we need to understand and we need to be careful that we understand that we are in a privileged position that we live in. And if we waste our time as God's witnesses in this world, then people starve. And that's how important our job is. You don't want to become a spectator in the deaths of other people. We want to be those who help. Because a person who is a spectator and watches other people willingly die without worrying about them is not a spectator anymore. We don't want to be those people. Let's go to Issachar. Verse 14 then says, Issachar is a strong ass couching down between two burdens. And he saw that rest was good and the land that it was pleasant and he he bowed his shoulder to bear and Became a servant unto tribute. So, Issachar, the actual name Issachar means man of wages, so a person who works for something. That's how he was named. And so, Issachar, the tribe of Issachar, is pictured as hard workers, and it's pictured that he pictures them as a strong donkey, right? Because that's what you use to carry around goods uh, in those days. And so, a donkey that's crouched. Between two heavy burdens. You know, have you ever seen a donkey laden with two big things on each side? Okay, And so the, the picture is that, that the hard-working animal. He's pictured as loving the rest, as appreciating what he has and the land so much that he willingly becomes a servant and he obligates himself. He says to tribute here. And that's a picture of Jesus. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12 with me for a moment. Hebrews chapter 12. It says, So it says here, He saw the rest was good and the land that it was pleasant, and he bowed his shoulder and to bear and became a servant. So because of what he saw that was pleasant, that was good, he willingly took up the servanthood. And so the Bible tells us as believers in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2, that we should be looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, he had something to look to, didn't he? He knew that when he got through all of this, when he paid for all of our sins, that there was the right hand of the Father that was waiting for him. And he was going to be glorified, that we were going to be saved, that the mission was going to be complete and that God was going to be glorified in what he had done. And so there's an interesting picture here because he's pictured as a a suffering servant. This is where the Jews fall over when they read the Old Testament. They read all the passages like Isaiah 53 and all those places. They speak about this servant of God, that's suffering and all sorts of stuff. And they say, that can't be the Messiah. The Messiah is meant to be a king. He's a lion of the tribe of Judah. He can't possibly be suffering. How can, he, how can this person be suffering who's bearing all this weight? And they haven't realised that they actually fulfilled that part by rejecting him the first time. But Jesus is pictured not just as a servant here, because this this is a picture of Christ. Okay, but look at Revelation chapter four, verse six. I want to share something with you. You may not have heard before: the servant nature of Christ. Revelation chapter four. The servant nature of Christ is celebrated. Did you know it's celebrated in heaven and on the earth? I'll, show, I'll tell you what I mean. Revelation chapter 4, verse 6 says, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts, full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had the face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle, and the four beasts had each of them six wings about them, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was, and is, and is to come. Did you notice the the four beasts, and what types of animals they look like to John? They look like a lion, a calf a man and an eagle. And it says that they have eyes all over, essentially. The front, the back, they see everywhere. They see everything, okay? And all they do is they cry out, holy, 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 Lord God almighty. Isn't that beautiful? The God we serve is three times holy. Why, is, why, is he, why do they call that holy, holy, holy? Because he is Father, Son and Spirit. He is three times holy. He is three in one. He is a triune God. And he is thrice holy as well. But on top of that, these, these four beasts who look very different from each other, all glorify him in the same way. So what do these have to do with the earth? Well, there is a testimony about the Son of God who came to the earth who, and it tells us a very, very clear, gives a very clear testimony about his nature. And four different characteristics of his nature that are described. And they are Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And each of those has an emphasis. You see, there's a reason God gave us four Gospels. Because those four Gospels show Jesus as a lion, as a calf, as a a servant, as a man and as an eagle. Those four testimonies reflect the glories of the the angels in heaven that are telling us about the Son of God and what he's like. Matthew portrays him as the Lion of Judah. Mark as a suffering servant. Luke as a son of man. John, as you all know, portrays him as the Son of God like an eagle flying in the heavens above everything. You see, the four Gospels we have in our hands today are really the reflection of what's happening in heaven and the testimony about the Son of God who came into the earth. So there's a lesson in this for us too. You see, we are to keep our eyes on our Saviour. We are to keep him as an example to ourselves of how we should live. Because he willingly endured suffering and rejection and the burden of all mankind and the sin for the joy that was set before him. Do you have a joy that's set before you? Do you have something you're looking forward to? Do you have something that you, you can say, there's going to be joy waiting for me? Yes, okay. Well, then we should be the same nature as him. We are called to keep our eyes on him as our example because he did it willingly and joyfully, knowing that there was a joy waiting for him. He fulfilled all the father's calling to him. And that is the call to us. Let's continue. Genesis 49, verse 16. We come to Dan now. And before we read it, I'd like like you to think about what you think of a dad calling his son a snake. Genesis 49, 16 says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent, by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse, heels so that his rider shall fall backward. I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. So Dan, whose name literally means judge, became a very aggressive and powerful tribe that actually did judge Israel for a time, during the time of the judges, but in some cases wasn't that flash. At at a later time, Dan even abandoned his own allotment in the promised land and travelled to the extreme north of Israel. And even though Dan is pictured as a snake along a path that bites at the traveller, Jacob's hope was that he would be saved on the day by God. So Dan became a, 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 a a hunter, Dan became a fighter who fought against, you'll notice that it says that he's, He's like a he's like a snake that bites at the heels of a horse, and the rider falls back, right? Because the horse gets afraid. Well, does Israel did Israel were Israel allowed to ride horses? By God, <coughs> they didn't have horses. God told them not to rely on horses. So while the other armies were full of horses in their armies, the Israelites did not. Because God did not want them to actually rely on horses and armour and those sorts of things when they fought their battles. And so this is a picture of him actually fighting against other nations. But Dan has fallen a fair way back. In a bad sign, the tribe of Dan in the book of Revelation, uh, when it mentions the tribes of Israel... During the, during the tribulation period that God blesses 144,000 to go and preach the gospel in the world, Dan is not even mentioned. And this brings us to Gad. Verse 19 says, Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. Okay, nice and simple. Not much there for Gad. <laughs> Gad was maybe waiting for a bit more. Gad's people, as we know historically, settled in an area that was prone to being invaded by foreign countries for a long time. So they sat at a place that was always susceptible to being to being uh, attacked, and they became very good fighters. Hence, the the term he says is Gad, like a troop, like a uh, like a a, a a troop of uh, soldiers. But he will overcome in the end, and so Gad is pictured as this this small, not, not much is said about them, but they were constantly fighting, defending themselves from being attacked and they became very good at it. And so there's a lesson in there for us. I think even this one verse, the lesson for us is that we are in a battle every day. The Bible says we are in a war at the moment and that we are surrounded by enemies and that we are the place we are at is a very, very susceptible place to being attacked. We live in a world that is contrary to what we believe. We live in a world that doesn't want to know about God and the devil wants to do everything he possibly can to to keep us silent and to keep us subdued and to do everything he can to try and destroy what we have. That's why he'll try and infiltrate, infiltrate churches and split them up. Whatever way he can, he'll do and so Gad becomes a, pi- a picture for us to keep on fighting because Gad became a troop. And you become a troop, you become good at fighting when you fight, not when you lay back and take it easy. You see, we haven't been called to, t- to take it easy. Nowhere in the word of God in the, in the New Testament does it tell us as believers to take it easy. It says we are, we are in the midst of a battle. And you only become a good fighter and a strong fighter when you fight. We are called to put on the armour and to use our sword, which is the word of God, and not be lazy. Which brings us to Asher. Genesis 49, 20. It says, Out of Asher, his bread shall be fat and he shall yield royal dainties. So Asher ended up, 700 years later, Dwelling in one of the most fertile plains in the land in Canaan, and they produced the best crops, and they, that that had been that were designed to feed Israel as well, including the palace of the king when a king arrived. But keep in mind that it would be over seven hundred years before Israel would return to that land, and it would be God who distributed the land to this particular tribe. So what's amazing about these, about these prophecies is that all that time that elapsed, it was God who actually allotted the land to them and God who actually fulfilled the promise and the blessing from Jacob those, all those years before. So all these things are a fulfilment that was said, but it was God who was in those sayings in the first place. So once again, there's a picture here for us. We live in the most fertile plains in this world. I'm not saying from, a, from an earthly point of view, I live in Wollert. Willert is fairly fertile, not that fertile. Although it used to be farming land before, now it's all houses. But the point is here that we have an amazing amount of produce that God's word yields stuff. It's, it's fertile. It, it provides. And so if we are in that word, if we are in the word of God, then God will produce everything that we need that will feed our spirit and feed our soul. And we're not called to consume these this goods and these beautiful things just for ourselves, but we are called to share them with the world, that the world might understand them and know them. Because the world, as I've said, is starving as in the middle of a drought and a famine. And so our job is to feed on the word of God, is to be fed through it because it it isn't consumed. Jesus says that if a man come to me, I will give him water and that water will flow to to fountains of everlasting water. That's what we have and we, we are called to share it with the world as well. Let's go to Naphtali. Naphtali, verse 21, Naphtali is a hind let loose? He giveth goodly words. Once again, nice, short, and quick. Naphtali became agile as a deer, a very and very skillful in warfare. From the point of view, they were not large, but they were quick to manoeuvre. And so, when you have that that ability to be able to do that, um, you become very useful in a in a a war situation. And so, we have um, this. Poem it says that they give goodly words. Well, later on, there was a poem that was devised for Deborah and Barak, um, who came from Naphtali, and it's an example of the, the skillful words that were given to them as well. So they were what look like they became poets as well. So in, in Judges 5:12, there's uh there's a song that was written: Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, utter a song, arise, Barak, and lead thy captivity captive, thy son of Abinoam. And in in Judges 5.18, it says, Zebulun and Naphtali were a people that jeoparded their lives unto the death in the high place of the field. So they were often involved in protecting their people. So once again, we have an example of us being skillful. We're called to be skillful in the word of God, to use it wisely when contending with the devil. You see, when Jesus... When the devil came to Jesus in the wilderness and he tempted him at his weakest point, how did Jesus defend? How did Jesus fight back? He fought back very skillfully with the word of God. And that's what we've been called to do as well. So just like them, we are called to do the same. Turn with me to verse 22 now, as we get to Joseph. We're almost near the end, so thank you for your patience. Genesis 49, 22 says, Joseph is a fruitful bow. Even a fruitful bow by a well whose branches run over the wall and the archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him, but his bow abode in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, even by the God of thy father who shall help thee and by the almighty who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above Blessings of the deep that lieth under. Blessings of the breast and of the womb. So when it comes to Joseph, we see not only a large portion that um, Jacob now devotes to it, but more than any other son, there's God mentioned in this. You don't see God mentioned in the other other son's accounts, but in in Joseph's life, you get this this wonderful expression of, of, of God all the way through. And it says that though Joseph was oppressed and was attacked by his own brethren, so that the point is he's fruitful, which he was proving now as the ruler of Egypt, he was proving fruitful his entire life, but even though he was attacked by his own brethren, his hope and strength came from God. And God is referenced more in this one passage than all of the other uh, children put together. And so he says there, the mighty hand of, of uh, God of Jacob will strengthen you. The God of thy father will help you. The Almighty will bless you from heaven. So he's, he's expressing this beautiful relationship that, and reliance that Joseph has on God. And that God blessed him even in the midst of his trials. In verse 26. The blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of thy of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of him that was separate separate from his brethren. So Joseph Joseph's sorry, Jacob's blessings on his own son, even from a young age, have are reflecting right now when they're talking to each other that. Even to this particular point, to the ends of the earth, to this place in Egypt where he became the ruler and was able to bless his own family, the blessings of Jacob have arrived and will continue to um, to be, pro- be providing a blessing on Joseph. And finally, we have Benjamin 49.27. Benjamin shall raven as a wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey and at night he shall divide the spoil. So Benjamin once again, became a warlike tribe in Israel. And the picture of this wolf that's, that's ravening, that's actually hungry and it's eating its prey, is a picture of him. And we find two Sauls that came from Benjamin. The first Saul was the king, the first king of Israel. And the next Saul became the Apostle Paul, who said he was a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin. And this brings us to the end here. What's extraordinary about Jacob's blessing upon his children is that it says so much truth about them as individuals. It tells a lot about what would come to them in the last days and during the the next few hundred years as well. But he speaks to his children in love. You know, there's... um, There are sometimes ways you can talk to people. Sometimes you can tell someone the truth in love and sometimes you can tell them the same truth in anger. And so I believe Jacob's last words to his sons were words of love, even though some of those words would have been difficult to say. And that's what we've been called to speak, the truth in love. And so he finished what he had to say, he blessed his children, he had he'd given Joseph the birthright, he had adopted Manasseh and Ephraim into his own family. And now, in verse 28 to 33, it says, And these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And, and this is it that their father spake unto them and blessed them. Everyone according to his blessing he blessed them. And he charged them and said unto them, I am gathered. I am to be gathered unto my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of uh, Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abram bought with the field with the field of Ephron the Hittite for a possession of a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried Leah. The purchase of the field and of the cave that is therein was from the children of Heth. And when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. I love that expression that he was gathered, he, he... raised his feet to his bed. He finished saying what he had to say. He told them, make sure you bury me in the right place. And it says that he yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. There is a place that we know that he went. We know that Jacob was with his people when he died. What about you? If you were to pass away today, if your life was to end today, or tomorrow, or in some, some small amount of time, where will you be? Where will you be gathered? That is the most important question you need to have answered for your life now. You see, what separates the gospel of Christ from every other religion in the world is that you can know where you're going, and not know where you're going based on how good you think you are, or how much you've earned, or or how or, or what you deserve. It's what Christ has done for you. It's knowing and putting your faith in Christ as your saviour. Just as a person who's drowning in the middle of the ocean can't save themselves, that is the plight of every person in this world. You can't swim to a shore. You can't see the shore. You are likely, not likely, but, but definitely going to drown. But then someone reaches down their hand to take you up. The only way you were going to survive, the only way you were going to not drown is to accept that thing. But it wasn't you that saved yourself. It wasn't you that got yourself to, to, to on board maybe a chopper or something like that from a rescuer. It wasn't you. It was them. They reached down and you simply had to put up your hand and say, I'll take that. That's what salvation in Christianity is all about. That's what it is. It's not we saving ourselves and working our way up to heaven because you cannot work your way up to heaven just as much as a drowning person can climb a mountain. You can't do that. The gospel tells us that we are all sinners, that we all deserve hell, and that by our very nature, we bring down God's wrath on top of us. So there's only one place that we are destined to go unless we notice the hand reaching down to us. And we are willing to accept it. And then he's the one who pulls us up. We can't pull ourselves up into heaven. It's he who pulls us up. So that's what salvation is. So this, today, if you can answer that question, if you know where you're going because you accepted Jesus as the one who saved you, when you put your trust in what he did on the cross for you, Will you believe that he rose again on the third day and is living and he's the one who is sitting at the right hand of the Father? If you put your trust in him today to save you, then you are going to heaven. You will be gathered to heaven. You will not be condemned to hell. What have you learned from this message today? I know there was a lot of information. Thanks for for being so patient. But it's my prayer that after all these different things that we've said about all these different sons and all the different ways they, uh, that they um, were going to be blessed or even cursed and what was to become of them and the type of persons they actually were, my prayer is that you'll have more confidence in the word of God. As you see that the prophecies that he had about his own children came to pass in them. I pray you'll have greater faith towards Christ. You'll trust him more in your life and in your decision-making. And I pray that you'll become more faithful to God, that you'll understand how important and precious our time is here because there isn't much of it. Before we know it, the years go by, the days, the weeks, the months, the years go by, and we look back at our lives and we say, oh, what did I do? I'll tell you what's the only thing worth doing, the thing that's going to last forever, are the things you've done for Christ. Everything else is going to go. Everything else is going to burn up. There is nothing else that's going to survive the coming judgment. And our our goal should be to live for him every day of our lives. God bless you. Thank you.